Welcome back, my friends, to the Mark Claire Show. My guest today is a psychotherapist, host of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, and he is the author of a free ebook, which you can get over at 7bigpharmamist.com. It is called 7 Big Pharma Mist It's Bunk. just 7 I'm, Pharma Mess. What did I say? I can't even, what did I say? 7 Big Pharma Mess? Okay. Well, you know, I can't even get to the yeah, intro, this, intro this, without, without messing up. It's called 7 Big Pharma Mess. See, I'm such a... I'm such a big mouth that I have to come in and uh, talk over you right at the beginning of the show, Mark. Well, that's how it goes. It's all right. But please do welcome the Scott himself, Anthony Samaroff. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well. Some of I've never been on the Mark Clare show before, but I did Lines of Liberty quite a few times. Yes, so some of, of your fans might not know me yet. But um, that, that one debate is still is still discussed to this day. The debate with the the Marxist professor. That's one of my more oh, talked about episodes. That was a really good show. Thank you so much for that. That was a yeah. That was a really good show, and I really enjoyed doing that. We, um, I debated Richard Wolf on Lions of Liberty. I appreciate that, and uh, we met in Mexico. Indeed, indeed, at the old uh, at the Sayulita Festival put on by our friend Johnny Profita. That's right, and I think. Uh, we were going through a period of being quite changed. Like a lot of us, Mark Claire and Anthony Samroff, pre-COVID versus after COVID. I think that is safe to say. So why don't why don't we start there a little bit? Because what at the time when I met you at this event in Mexico, this was I want to say the end of 2021. Does that sound right? And so you <laughs> had already been you had already left Scotland. I think shortly after the COVID stuff happened and had been traveling around. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, wh what you were doing in Scotland, like when all that stuff went down, and when you kind of looked around you and said, "This is not where I want to be right now." Uh, so tell us a little bit about your travels over the last couple of years. Yeah, and this is obviously relevant because we're going to talk about the ebook Seven Big Pharma Myths Debunked, uh, which you can find at sevenpharmamyths.com. The number seven pharmamyths.com. And yeah, I would say that uh, COVID was instrumental in me talking and uh, me deciding to focus on this topic rather than anything else I could have written about. So it is relevant. Yeah, so I was chilling in Scotland. Uh, lockdown came in, I think, March of 2020. I'd not been back long from India, actually. I was intending to go back out to India, but I was pretty tired back then. It's quite interesting because I traveled on and off for a few months, and that was tiring for me. I actually ended up traveling for 18 months. Now, that's quite interesting because it completely changes your perspective on what's a long time. And uh, I learned to embrace the digital nomad lifestyle. So some good came out of it for me. But the circumstances were pretty weird. Like, um, I guess I thought that lockdowns were nonsense from day one. But a couple of friends, even my libertarian friends, were saying, well, you don't seem to be taking it very seriously. So I thought, well, maybe they... I thought, you know, Zika, SAR, uh, Zika, what else did we have? Yeah, exactly all that stuff. I was just like, here we go again. So I was pretty mm -hmm. surprised when they locked down. But, you know, I kind of enjoyed it for the first few weeks. And to my shame, I uh, even posted to Facebook after a couple of weeks. The only thing that I'm not enjoying about lockdown is that we can't go out for a drink to celebrate lockdown. And I, I, I was kind of kidding. <laughs> You're so like, lucky I didn't I, see that status, Anthony. I know. This is like two or three weeks into it. Or maybe I'm I, I was being cynical because I didn't really agree with the lockdowns. But I was, I was enjoying 
just the weird change of pace. And I am sh- ashamed of it. I deleted it when it came up on Facebook memories and I, I deleted it off Instagram because it was like, what the fuck? Um, how, who knew that it was going to go on for so long? So things opened up in Scotland and I had a girlfriend that was based in, in, in Florida and she came over to see me and uh, spent 10 days in, in Scotland and things weirdly started to, they started to bring in curfews again. And I was like, what are you talking about? We just opened up. And uh, so I went to, so I, my plan was to go and stay with her for six weeks, kind of like see if, see if it was a gore. Do you know what I mean? Because there's no point having a long distance relationship unless it's got future. And uh, it's a in order to get off that, the pot situation from the beginning. Correct. And correct. So as you like, know. Let's find out if this is, is going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, so so in order to do that, I had to spend a month in Mexico. Well, I actually needed to spend two weeks in Mexico because you couldn't go to USA directly from Scotland because of COVID regulations. So you could go to Mexico City and attend a crack party and uh, sleep with the curse. Which, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you did. did that, but, you know, yeah, exactly. Well, so you had to go to Mexico for your for your cleansing first. You know, once you spent the two weeks right, in Mexico, yeah. you ate enough tacos, you sweat it all out, and then you're safe to come in. Right, exactly. So there there was absolutely no logic to that regulation, but that's how it was. So I thought, okay, I looked up a yoga retreat and I, I went there for three and a half weeks. And, and I did that before going to Florida. Now, it was a very lovely relationship, but I, I, I didn't see a long-term future, so... I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go back to Scotland because they were still in lockdown. So I just went back to the retreat. Could you and even have gone started, back in at that point? Did they have a vaccine mandate? Yeah, this was long before my vaccine, the vaccine had been developed. Actually, what I really wanted to do was go back to India because I've spent, I'd spent at least six months in India before um, 2020. And uh, I really wanted to go back and do all the stuff that I usually did. But I just thought, well, maybe they'll be open next month. Maybe they'll be open next month. Maybe they'll be open next month. Ended up back in the States, went to a couple of libertarian events. Uh, I made friends with Stefan Kinsella, um, uh, the, the author of Against Intellectual Property in Houston. The very first person I ever interviewed on a podcast ever was Stefan Kinsella. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, There's a little note. synchronicity. I feel like it's synchronicity that I met him because I was meant to go to Idaho, but the person I was going to meet there, um, someone I was collaborating with, ended up going to Houston. So I went in Houston instead and I met Stephen Gisela there. We got on really well, went to a couple of libertarian events, and I found out that was a little bit famous in the USA. So <laughs> that led to a whole kind of tour of libertarian events. And I was just libertarian kind of famous. Let's not, get, let's not get too confused yeah. here. <laughs> Libertarian famous. Libertarian famous Something. is better than nothing, Mark. That's you must true. know That's this. <laughs> I know it all too well. Right. So that's it. So I, I started going to different libertarian events and a lot meeting people and people uh, said, oh, you should come and visit here. You should come and visit there. And if, if, if enough people said that and uh, I had enough Facebook friends based in that city, I'd make my way over and see if I could create a little meetup. And back then, uh, I wrote the book uh, "Universal Basic Income For and Against," and and I flogged that at meetups to to which which uh, sometimes made up for the cost of my airfares because flights were really cheap back in those days. And so, even though on the whole I was out of pocket, I definitely wasn't out of pocket in love. And I, I don't think I would have been able to do the tour without, uh, you know, 
certain. Um, without, I, I wouldn't have been able to afford to do the tour without the support of the libertarian community because people would pick me up from the airport or um, put me up for a couple of nights. So it was really awesome and it was a fun time. And I, and, and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about traveling and I became more of an adult because you keep on making mistakes and fucking stuff up. And then you have to learn how to do stuff properly. Fast forward a little while. That's I, I don't want to gloss over that. That's such a huge uh, part of uh, traveling and getting out and doing things that are uncomfortable. And it's I think right. so many of us get into our comfort zones, myself included. Uh, I've been in comfort zones and had mm-hmm. and been forced to get out of them. But almost always, as as you're kind of laying out here, when you are forced out of your comfort comfort zone and traveling for eighteen months, that's way the fuck out of anyone's comfort zone. I don't care how much you love traveling, how much you like being on the road. Like eighteen months. Is a long, long yeah. time, and you're gonna make a lot of fumbles along the way. But I mean, the strength building you get out of that is just off the charts. Yeah, there's no question there. I'm just I'm yeah. Just so I'm thankful <laughs> for that, and to tie it into the COVID mania, it's like that's exactly what people didn't do. Do you know what I mean? A lot of people in their house. A lot of people said, "I don't even go out anymore to social events and stuff like that since lockdown because I got out of the habit of doing it." And my social anxiety got worse. And now I don't want to go to a vet. I met people who've told me that. So I guess it's a thing. It's, you know, you're either growing or you're dying. You know, you need to, um, mm. you broaden your horizons and um, expose yourself to situations that are anxiety provoking. And then you grow as a human and you become more competent and more apt to deal with the situations in life or you shy away from challenge and you become less apt and less able to deal with life situations and this ties into the big pharma stuff as well because even according to official sources with the exception maybe of antibiotics which kill pathogens but then again you know should you be doing that should you uh, if it's life-threatening probably but you know maybe if it's not life-threatening, what you should do is allow your immune system to handle it so that your immune system becomes more robust. Secondly, I guess, you know, hormones, um, if, if, if you've had an organ removed like your thyroid, you might need those. Well, no, you will need those. So, But apart from that, most medications do not cure diseases. They just mitigate symptoms. So, um. Again, this is like the we've been indoctrinated to see any discomfort in life as something that needs to be avoided, taken away, and so and so forth, and so, and so on and so forth. A lot of the diseases that people use medications to to mitigate can be can be changed, can be reversed with lifestyle changes. Um, but they won't be reversed if you simply um, make the make the symptom go away while you don't deal with the underlying cause. If you've got a nutritional deficiency, a mineral deficiency, no amount of aspirin is going to make that go away. If you're dehydrated, it's, it's, it's amazing when you think about it because we know that one nutritional deficiency can cause an untold number of diseases, but when you go into the doctor they don't check to see if you've got any um dehydration itself most people are dehydrated because we we eat a lot of dry food you know toast tacos 
um, corn chips. You don't really see animals in nature eating dry food except for like cashew nuts and, uh, you know, well, nuts in general, So which aren't absorbent. So it's quite interesting that, um, uh, but we can get into that kind of stuff maybe in the smoke-filled room. Uh, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, the way this like general trend of, like, I mean, for example, we're sitting on chairs all the time. This causes a lot of the back problems, allegedly, that people get later in life. When you go to indigenous cultures like in India, where I've been, or Mexico and stuff like that, people um, sit cross-legged or they, 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 can't, they, they, don't lose, they don't lose the mobility in their body. They can work over their head. They work uh, on trees. They can weave above their head. I'm just higher than, that, higher than I'm putting my arms. Uh, we lose these abilities because of of modern living, and then you don't want to do it. You put your cereal boxes in in your cupboards where you can reach them. I, I heard a mobility teacher say in a podcast, deliberately put your potatoes down where you have to bend over to pick them up. Put your stuff up on the shelves where you have to reach out for them, because if you constantly continue that behavior, then that will make a big difference when you're older. If you want to be able to get off the toilet when you're old without someone helping you, get squatting. This is not trivial. This has a massive um, effect on what the end of your life is going to be like. But you're not going to hear that from the doctors and you're certainly not going to hear it from the pharmaceutical industry. So that's my quite labored segue. I mean, I've I've seen this kind of thing firsthand. I mean, uh, I have relatives who've had you know cholesterol problems, and instead of looking at their mm. diet or even asking them about their diet or even thinking about right, their diet, right. they jump immediately to these statins and and whatnot. And then turns right. out a, a couple of years later, oh, I'm having these problems. Why? Because of the statins. So they they and then oh, well, we have some drugs for this. So it's just it becomes a right. chain of drugs without ever actually addressing the doctors never even bring up why you had the problem in the first place or what the root of the problem was in the first place. So it just becomes a series of chasing symptoms and then chasing reactions to other drugs and it's horrible to watch in real time. Thank you so much. And you know, statins are a perfect example. In 1999, the Lion's Heart Study demonstrated that a change in the diet could lead to 70% less heart disease. Um, and back then, they had overrated the benefit of statins. Now, the, the prevailing cultural view that people are not willing to change their habits certainly helps the medical industry sell statins. But um, the thing is, the, the data on them is terrible. Like, they, this is what they call preventative medicine, what they keep on doing is putting more and more healthy people on statins. Now, medical researchers like um, John Abramson, who wrote Sickening and Overdose America, Meryl Guzner, the author of The $800 million Pill, actually wrote a letter signed by 35 physicians and researchers to the National Institutes of Health, correcting serious errors and their meta-analysis of the data on statins, right? And encouraging to the update their guidelines in line with the best evidence available. But what, and that's evidence-based medicine, right? I want to talk about that for a, in a minute. What is evidence-based medicine? What happened was when the next set of guidelines came out, they recommended statins to even younger and even more healthy people, 
right? So the problem with that is cholesterol is a risk factor. Lowering the risk factor is not the same as changing the behavior that established that risk factor at the same time. Conditions to manage your blood pressure. Now a big one is your weight, right? They're actually giving people injections to lower their weight and saying, well, if you're obese, you're more likely to get these this set of diseases. So obviously, if we reduce your weight, then you're less likely to get those diseases. Not necessarily. And the worst thing is... Because the weight could just be a symptom of, of, of your diet and whatever Correct. it may be that are leading to all the other problems. Yeah, exactly. 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 So what you're actually doing is you've, 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 correlation does not prove causation. They tell us that all the time. And yet you can get medications approved on the basis that they change, that they change risk factors. In the book I'm writing, the bigger book, one of the examples, the most egregious example of this is you can get a cancer treatment approved without proving that it improves patients' length of life, quality of life, or um, or any of their patients. Actually, you can you can prove that it you can get a, a medication approved without proving that it improves the quality of life of le- or length of life of the patient just so long as you prove that it shrinks the tumor. There's one big problem with that. Oncology literature is absolutely filled with studies that say tumor shrinkage does not guarantee better sh- patient outcomes. They can die of the treatment. They can get a secondary infection. They can bleed to death. The tumor can shrink for a couple of weeks and then grow back even quicker than ever and kill them. Right. So even by their own freaking admission, right. So th- th- this is what I love to do in my writing on big pharma, which is I love to demonstrate that they, even if you go to their own sources, they admit the worst of it. You could find even worse, maybe you could find even worse information, conspiracy theory websites and publications and stuff like that. And some of the conspiracy theories must be true. But all I do is dig around and find what the official sources admit. And I've got tons of citations and stuff in the Seven Pharma Myths book. Well, I I first want to discuss a little bit how how we got here. How do we get to the point where the farm how the pharmaceutical industry operates where it doesn't actually have to operate based on outcomes, based on action, but based on patients right. actually living longer or patients actually getting better. How, how is this industry? I mean, if the car industry, for example, uh, if, if the, if the end result wasn't your car works, but maybe like a headlight works better, but the, the engine blows up when you leave the lot that, that, you know, it would be, it would never work out. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this whole industry basically does the same exact thing and billions of dollars in profit, maybe trillions. So how do we get here? Yeah, there's so many factors to that. Um, you can look at it historically. You can look at it in terms of who funds the institutions. You can look at it in the individual level and how sort of people's attitudes collude. Although people's attitudes are informed or let's say misinformed, right? So, for example, um, when you look at the news in America in the evening, uh, the vast majority of ads or pharma ads. And I naively thought they were trying to sell drugs. 
But actually, it turns out this is how they buy favorable coverage. Because in my research, I found that there's hundreds of drug withdrawals every year, uh, wrong dosage on the bottle, um, or, or any for any reason, right? Uh, so really, the news could cover a pharma scandal every day, right? And then people would be absolutely terrified of using pharmaceuticals because there'd be so many scandals. But there are very few reported. There's even been so many instances of drugs being litigated against because they were illegally advertised for indications that they weren't proven for and what, 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 all sorts of stuff. And the doctors go on prescribing them because they don't even know that the company was taken to court and sued. For, like, um, uh, w- one of them was uh, Neurontin, also known as Gabapentin, for, I think it's bipolar, for example. They were taken to court, still, pres- still widely prescribed for that indication, even though there's no evidence to back it up. So when you look at where the funding... So people are misinformed. The university system... Uh, the, the pharma companies write the textbooks. You get blackballed if you don't if if you if you go up against them. Um, I had a girlfriend in Mexico City who's a doctor, and she said, "I never go to conferences that aren't funded by pharma. I mean, why would I? I'm not going to go into my own pocket and pay to a con- to go to a conference. But we need so much continuing medical education a year, so obviously I'll go to. I need to do it." So I'll go to a conference knowing that it's funded by pharma. And the doctors think, yeah, I know that it's funded by pharma, but it's, uh, I might as well, you know, you went through 10 years on the poverty line during your, doing 70 hours a week before you even started getting paid. You know, you feel like you're entitled to uh, make back the money and enjoy a, a nice resort and, and, and listen to some lectures. So you think it's not going to, change your prescribing habit. It's, it's interesting that that you put it that way, that there is probably some sort of sense of like, well, maybe I know this system is a little bit corrupt and I kind of know it's not right per se, but God damn it, I worked my ass off for so long. I earned that that degree on the wall. Right, exactly. I earned this license. I, I may as well get mine. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and, and that's one of the reasons why in my opinion, they put people through this gauntlet to become doctors. Because by the time they come out the other end, they're so invested in the system, they're the last ones to question it. And I, I've got doctor friends who inform my research, and some are awake, and others uh, are part of the mainstream system, but um, still help me get insights into things. And uh, I, I find them, and because I can speak the language to a degree, they, they can be quite... Um, informative uh so uh, and they well, well i mean i've had people say you know doctors aren't that smart i mean they're smarter than all average but they're not question askers they're they, they believe in the cult of authority they've earned their authority and they've been educated by organizations they believe have earned their authority and it's like you do what the authority says you know do what your doctor says. When I was a kid, um, and I went, uh, I, I once a doctor asked to prescribe something for me, and I said, "Okay, well, I'll just go and have a little look online first. And he went, "Okay, then, doctor." And I was shocked because I thought you'd be happy that I was taking an interest. That you want to see but what's actually, in this thing he's recommending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
the other thing is a, a wrong historical view of things, which is people have the misperception that pharmaceutical com- pharmaceuticals are cause of the disappearance of diseases, which they're not the cause of the disappearance of. So as you know, our grandparents and our great-grandparents um, suffered through all sorts of polio, tuberculosis, whooping cough, rickets, scurvy, Spanish flu, etc. And most people think that this has reversed due to pharmaceuticals and that we're living longer due to pharmaceuticals. But as I demonstrate in my book, according to mainstream sources, most of this happened due to public health advances. So um, here's one from the CDC. The average lifespan of persons in the United States have lengthened by greater than 30 years since 1900. 25 years of that gain are attributable to advances in public health rather than medicine. And of that five years, the majority, they say, is down to preventative medicine rather than pharmaceuticals. So one story I love to tell is in the, um, you know, every year people in, in New York used to get scurvy and uh, yellow fever because New Jersey in the in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, were just a swamp. Like um, the bread, New Jersey was was a swamp that bred mosquitoes. And every summer, the mosquitoes would just fly across the river and start infecting people with malaria and yellow fever. But the rich people would just pack up their stuff and move somewhere colder, right? And it's still the case that being poor today is hazardous to your health. You're more likely to get diabetes. People live in these um, in flats with are more likely to live in flats with mold, and they don't have a social network, and blah 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 blah. So it's really um, access to clean drinking water, better nutrition, and 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 all these things. You know, they used to have these. Uh, horse-drawn carts going through before the, the invention of the car and the horses would just crap on the streets, right? So people lived in small flats, many, many people to an apartment. In fact, the average living space per person doubled in America as recently as between 1973 and, 19, and 2014. So the, the doctor, the mainstream doctors would like to take credit for the disappearance of all these conditions, but even we've got, uh, I cite the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, as well, who put it down to public health. So this is just like mainstream, it's admitted by mainstream sources, but most people don't know it. So when you actually look at the effectiveness of pharmaceutical medicine, given that we're the most medicated people of all time, you have to tell me if pharmaceutical medicine is so amazing and successful, why is diabetes skyrocketing? Why is Alzheimer's disease through the roof? Why is obesity off the charts? Why is arthritis? Why is everyone getting it when they get old? Why is cancer? Why are you so much more likely to get cancer now than in the 70s? Why, why have more people got multiple sclerosis, lupus, asthma, migraines, ADD, ADHD? Um, pharmaceutical medicine has failed to reverse even a single one of the long-term chronic diseases that we are the most likely to suffer from during our lifetime. So that is, those are some of the myths that I give you mainstream sources to 
uh, proselytize your friends at thesinfarmamyths.com, the ebook you can get there. You know, talking about the last few years, I think it was very obvious that a, a lot of people, for the, many of which for the first time, were starting to have their eyes opened a, a little bit due to the V, so to speak. Uh, maybe we'll still be a little coy. I think you can, you're pretty safe on YouTube nowadays. But due to the, the vax and whatnot, the code vax and everything that went on with that, a lot of people did start mm-hmm. to become skeptical of it. I think the push mm-hmm. was so strong lollipops, that many people were... Lollipops. What's that? The lollipops, the Twinkies, the donuts, the lollipops, uh, all of it. And But one thing I would often hear from people is that, yeah. okay, well, yeah, yeah I'm not going to take that. But they would often default to the... To the, but I know these other ones, all these childhood ones that we take. I know those are all good. I've taken all those. Of course, I'm gonna. Of course, I'm gonna give my kid those. But this one. So, right. I'm curious your thoughts on yeah. the truth to that. <laughs> you know, if, if this if this round was so obvious and so glaring okay, that a sure. lot of people were seeing it, how much of what went on before just wasn't hasn't come to light for many people? Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I I'm not going into uh, great detail on. Um, injections in this particular book, apart from to say that the Academy of Pediatrics in 2000 published a study in their very own journal, Pediatrics, which stated very plainly, and I quote, vaccination does not account for the impressive declines in mortality. We should add to that witnessed in the 20th century, but that in fact, nearly 90% of the decline in infectious disease mortality among US children occurred before before 1940. That's to say, long before most of the antibiotics and vaccines were invented to help account for the achievement. So um, tuberculosis had already plummeted by 1945, which is a year before the development of streptomycin in 1946. And the same goes for these other diseases that uh, are attributed to injections. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to think about this. Just put it this way, right? See if the CDC wants to demonstrate that we're all a bunch of crazy anti-vaxxers. It's very easy to do. All they need to do is there's 800,000 completely unjabbed people in the USA. So why not do a study of the long-term health outcomes of vaccinated and unvaccinated populations? Take 10, 20, 50, 100,000 of these people. Today's episode of the Mark Claire Show is sponsored by right here, Fox and Sons, foxandsons.com, my favorite coffee brand. And I don't just say that because they're sponsors of the show. I say that because I get a one pound bag shipped to my house. The proof is right here. Uh, Every single month, I get my pound of Fox and Sons delivered right to my house. You should too. Of course, I don't expect you to just dive right in with no idea what you're getting into. I want you to go get yourself a sample bag. Go over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. You can check out the Den Blend Dark, as is my preference, the Tanzanian Peaberry, Brazilian Honey Premp, a bunch of other flavors still to come. Uh, Steven's always mixing it up with new fresh beans. The best part about this business Stephen started it to not only relive his love for sharing coffee with his father, but to teach his own sons about entrepreneurship. If that doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies, I don't know what will. Just kidding. Yes, I do. This coffee will. So head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS to get yourself 18% off your order. You're going to be coming back for more. Trust me. Foxandsons.com, discount code MCS. Back to the show. Let's see 
how much diabetes they have. Let's measure all of their chronic illnesses and then age adjust it and compare it to the same number of completely vaccinated people. Now, the CDC have been asked to do this study. They refuse to do this study. Not only that, anyone who's tried to do this study loses their position at university and is blackballed. There was a pediatrician, of um, Dr. Paul Thomas, who did this um, study in, in, uh, in Oregon. And the next day, the Oregon board, Medical Board found an excuse to take away his medical license, which obviously wasn't down to him, him uh, making the study, and he had to take them to court to get it get reinstated. James Lyons Wheeler, who um, I should be teaching a course on the economics of healthcare reform. More on that later. We'll 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 mention it. We'll mention it in the end if that's something that um, you might be interested in. Uh, he designed that study. And yeah, uh, despite being a top researcher, uh, there's also um, has been blackballed. There's Anthony Mawson who did a similar study and was is now retired because the university ran him out under pressure. So why are they so reluctant to compare long-term health outcomes of vaccinated and unvaccinated populations? Surely they would they would want to demonstrate that um, we're 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 were insane. Right, right. And and doesn't it sort of, disp- I mean, because the, the, the unlike a lot of other drugs, they don't really need to, or maybe not drugs, the drugs would be the wrong example, but unlike a lot of other industries and a lot of other products, that industry overall doesn't necessarily need to prove that they're not causing harm of some kind because they have right. such a, a sort of uh, a safety net I guess, if you will. So maybe you can speak right. on on a little bit of that stuff. I know the yeah. book itself doesn't focus on, on as much yeah. of that, but I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact. Yeah, I think no, a lot I, of people think, well, if, if these things were causing harm, whether yeah, it's exactly. the, whether it's injections or some kind of medicine, if these things were causing harm, surely we would know about it. <laughs> but there's a reason we don't. Well, um, you're, you're right in the sense that pharmaceutical drugs have to be tested against the placebo and vaccinations don't. And... They've got other ways of manipulating the data when it comes to drugs, right? I I can go into some of them. I do go into some of them in the book. But uh, yeah, with vaccinations, people are saying that it's the adjuvants that are causing harm. Now, adjuvants are toxic chemicals they put in deliberately into vaccinations because they say, what we're giving you is an attenuated or a weakened virus. So to give you a more robust immune response, we're going to put some poison chemicals in it and uh, your body will like, you know, like people think uh, if you smack a dog, well, it does some behavior that you don't like. It'll give the dog the impression that it shouldn't do that behavior. It's kind of like conditioning. In the same way, your body's going to freak out and it's going to associate the robust immune response with this vaccination. But I don't really think that proves anything. I mean, you you could just say that it's... it's uh, you're having an immune response to toxic chemicals, right? So they go, oh, well, there you had a robust immune response. No SHIT. And we're the ones you, you that are anti-science. Yes, when they I don't did. even test their, pro- uh, their product against the placebo. Yeah, right. So the thing is, what they'll do is they'll test the virus. If you, <laughs> and there's a whole another uh, Pandora's box we could open, right? It is maybe in the, the maybe in the smoke against, room, not against the placebo, but uh, against adjuvants, 
Right. Okay. Well, um, against the adjuvants. Now, if the adjuvants are causing a pro or another vaccine, right? So if it's the adjuvants that are causing a problem, that's not a that's not a placebo trial. In addition to that, they'll um, they don't test the whole vaccine schedule for for synergistic reactions. So they'll, they'll do these individually, but it's like so. The, the, Another thing is, you, as you as you probably know at home, if you've been paying attention, you can't sue a vaccine manufacturer for poisoning for for a vaccine injury. They created this whole special other court that you have to take back the vaccine companies to, and the government pays for it if you win through the tax system. But unlike in normal court, if a vaccine has caused a certain contraindication, uh, a certain condition before in a normal court you'd be able to use that as a precedent and go look this the, for example these uh, breast implants caused this problem to women before and it was proven we've got a case of it see so it's likely that it's done it again you're not allowed to do that in the vaccine courts so even if you've got your child gets a condition you need to start from scratch and prove that it was the vaccine that caused it all over again without going, look, there's a precedent here. So there could be 100,000 kids with the same response and they would say, well, that's not, that has nothing to do with this. Right, okay. So given the amount, the sheer amount of doohickery that's going on, it's amazing that anyone can look at vaccines uh, and not go, I smell rat, right? I'm not going to say that they're harmful. I'm going to say, just look at the research and the data and ask me why, like, why no placebo trials? Why are they not um, doing a long-term study of vaccinated va versus anti-vaccinated populations? Why are they not safety testing the vaccine schedule as a whole? Uh, like, just do the science. All I'm saying is, do the fucking science. What is one, is there one myth or one particular maybe fact you can toss out there that you think that a lot of people that are already skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry, people like you or I, people that already might have yeah. skepticism over injections, is there something that you think even they will be surprised to find out? Um, specifically about, I mean, that, I, I, I've thrown out my most surprising stuff about in, injections. I think um, there's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Pretty much everything I, I cover should be shocking. I think the thing is, people have the impression that what's going on when it comes to medications is science, right? But the, the sheer number the, the, the sheer number of ways that I, I, I think here's the thing. I just think like if, if according to official sources, right, medications are the third leading cause of death in the USA. So when you say um, the uh, uh, when you look at the sheet, like the the cost benefit analysis would shock people, right? So about one hundred twenty eight thousand a year die from taking properly prescribed pills. We're talking about people who just did what their doctor said, right? But then again, the same die because of dosage errors or the use of a drug that's contraindicated, contraindicated for them, or they got given a drug that they shouldn't have taken with another drug that they're taking, and, and so on. So that, that makes up to 250,000 a year. 
But then not everyone who's damaged by a drug dies. So every year, 840,000 hospitalized patients are given drugs that cause serious adverse reactions. And that makes up for a total of 2.7 million serious uh, adverse drug reactions. So when they say that anything is safe and effective, I, I, one of my myths is that pharmaceutical medicine is safe, the other that it's effective, right? Hospital inquire, acquired infections. According to the CDC, they kill 100,000 people and cost $25 billion a year to treat. Now, um, experts at John Hopkins were able to decrease the number by 82% and save nearly $200 million in treating hospital-acquired infections. But the thing is, the private hospitals don't have any incentive to stop this from happening uh, because when they looked at it, hospital acquired infections generated around $45,000 more in profits than patients that didn't. So I'm not saying they're there trying to give people hospital acquired infections. I'm just saying they don't have the incentive to stop it from happening. And like, and you know, we're libertarians, we're into economics, like the, like the fact that everything in the medical industry, every, all of these people are making money. Pharma reps don't do anything to improve the quality of care. The only thing they're there to do is convince a doctor to prescribe their medication rather than their comp competitor's medication. People just want the best treatment with the best evidence, not advertising, right? There's all these hangers on making money. And we were told in economics, a system tends to produce the results that it's incentivized to produce. And that's what, what, what it does. What you would, let me put it this way, Mark. If I was your financial advisor and I said to you, I've got a great idea for you, right? Anytime your account goes up in value, yeah, I'll make money, but I'll make even more money if your account goes down in value. But don't worry, if I kill you, then I'll lose it all. You, you won't have to pay me anymore. You'd be like, get the fuck out of here, Anthony. You sociopath. But that is the incentive structure of the system. The sicker you get, the better, just so long as they don't kill you. So the incentive structure says, we'll make the most money if we get people to be chronically ill and treat them for years and years and years and years, as long as possible, and get other people to pay for it, healthy people to pay for it, through the tax system. And that's exactly what we get. So being a libertarian gives you some insight into this that uh, maybe someone coming at it from the left and being um, like anti-corporate or anti-pharma wouldn't get. I mean, those used to exist a few years ago, I'm sure. Yeah, you, you know what I mean? So what we're getting is what we're paying for. We're paying for the treatment of chronic illnesses and that's what we're getting. I'm curious what, I, I want to try to look at what 
a positive solution that people can try to come to with a lot of this stuff. Because I think when you start diving into this topic and you start to, it can be like diving into anything. Uh, it could be like going down any, a particular conspiracy rabbit hole as well, where yeah. there's so much coming at you. There's so much information. There's so much, oh shit, everything is bad. Every company's, you know, corrupt. They're, they're out to kill me. Their medicines are killing us. What is one to do? And how, how do you, how do you sort of navigate that system and try to come up with your own health solutions that maybe don't reject all of the mainstream? Cause there's, I'm sure there's a lot of actual real true things mm -hmm. in the mainstream medical industry mm -hmm. that really do work. Uh, but there's a lot that, that is causing harm. How do you navigate that system without falling into what I think can also be some maybe dangerous rabbit holes in certain areas of the alternative health area. I'm not saying that that alternative health is bad, but there are probably certain rabbit holes you can go down that could also cause poor health if you make bad decisions on that end. So if you can't turn to the doctors, you can't turn to the system, what are you supposed to do besides, you know, choose your favorite internet crackpot? <laughs> right, okay. Well, I mean, my first of all, make me your favorite internet crackpot okay. and get my book from sevenpharmamyths.com. But yeah, I mean, look, I'm a really big fan of stuff like fasting, intermittent fasting, juice cleanse, like I, I believe that a lot of you create vulnerability to the disease based on the underlying cellular condition of your body, right? So on the fundamental level, there's three things that create vulnerability to disease at least. One is nutritional deficiency. So that means more fresh produce, organic preferably, who knows what they're spraying with it. Who knows what they're even spraying their organic produce. Um, high water content food, uh, which means fruits and vegetables. Um, secondly, um, yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, where was I? Secondly, so first nutritional deficiency, and there's various things, you know, stuff like algae, um, uh, spirulina, chlorella, uh, which which basically is so full of minerals and things like that. And chlorella in particular has a detoxification property. Um, the the um, because our, our our soils are depleted. So again, coming back to the thing about there's so many levels of analysis. So on the personal level, you need to make sure one that your body's get getting what it needs to create healthy tissues, and two that it's not got stuff in it that's poisoning it. So unfortunately, largely because of the system we have, you know, processed foods got to go if you don't, you know, are minimized if you don't want to get sick later in life. These things gather up in the cells and uh, compound. And I've got some suggestions in the Seven Pharma Myths book. Um, I can't go through everything. There's things that you can do to help your body get rid of stuff that it doesn't need. These are more kind of things that I want to discuss um, with people. If you know, if they get on my Substack and whatnot, I'm going to be on locals, like in my in my private community, like. Um, solutions because an another thing is you can if you're not in a private community you can get uh, arrested for uh, practicing medicine without a medical license someone i know uh, got uh, he was fasting people in maryland and the maryland medical board sent a message to him saying you have to stop fasting people because you're practicing method medicine without a license and he said, well, according to your own guidelines, practicing med medicine is prescribing, treating, and diagnosing. And I'm not doing any of that. So 
um, treating means with surgery or pharmaceuticals and I'm not doing any of that. And they said, yeah, but people are coming to you and getting better. Uh, so you're practicing medicine. And he said, I should have said, well, if people are coming to me and getting better, then I'm definitely not practicing medicine. <laughs> um, so <laughs> one is, is your body get, getting everything it needs to create healthy tissues? Two, is there anything in it that is preventing it? Like, you know, heavy metals, microplastics, processed food, you need like digestive enzymes and, and um, stuff like that to start breaking down the residue from processed food because processed food is basically food without enzymes right they take the enzymes out so that they can put it on the shelf for a long time that means you can't break it down because it's not got the enzymes in it to break it down so it's like stay in touch stay in touch if you want more information in this stuff and um, make an inquiry right because you can't go through everything and um, then the third one is emotional and psychological disturbances uh, and then some people believe you know and energetic disturbances as well. This is going back to chi in the East or prana in India, you know, the, the energy system. So that's a possible fourth. If you believe in that stuff, if you don't, then that's fine as well. You just call it emotional and psychological disturbances because we know that stress reduces functionality and things like that. So one is you need to take this shit into your own hands. Unfortunately, during my research, and I, 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 talk about it in the up-and-coming book um, there have been successful programs that stopped people from getting diabetes and heart disease but they stopped them because the private hospitals lost money when they prevented disease so the private hospitals didn't have any incentive to continue to run them so this is the problem because um, the thing is this shouldn't be a solo mission mark unfortunately it is it shouldn't be a solo mission we are social creatures. We get fat together. There's studies that demonstrate um, social contagion. And when they, they take people, if you have an obese person, the, 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 more, the more close a person is to them, the more likely they are to be obese as well. So we, and they showed that it's not just because birds of a feather flock together. It actually, people influence each other. So... I know we're libertarians and we're individualists, but look, this society pays for people in many ways to treat illness after the fact. So it's subsidizing negative behavior. It's, 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 uh, it's encouraging people to be sick because that's how, that's how they make their money. Now, I think somewhere or another in, libertarian, in a libertarian future, we would find ways on the free market to internalize all these external costs because chemo can run $250,000 a year or more. You could, hundreds of thousands of dollars could uh, a heart attack could cost. So rather than go, um, it would cost a fraction of that, a fraction of that to just bribe people to go on a program. It's like, well, you know, We'll freaking pay you to go on the program and we'll fine you if you don't go on it because that will be cheaper than treating your chronic disease once you develop one. So it's not that we don't have the money. If America had a similar healthcare system to Singapore's and their, their healthcare system, which is less good and has less good outcomes than Singapore's system, supposing they performed equally well 
instead of spending $4 trillion a year on healthcare, America would only be spending $1 trillion a year in healthcare. And that's without even fixing the fact that uh, a lot of people are being treated for all sorts of, uh, with, with all sorts of treatments that don't even work. And so we've got tons of money. We've got tons and tons of money to prevent disease. It's enough money to balance the budget and keep conservatives happy and to pay for social security and keep liberals happy and still have enough left over for a nice tax cut. So it's not that we don't have the money, it's the money isn't being spent correctly. It's going through the system the wrong way. Anthony, well, one more thing I want to kind of dive into you with a little bit. Maybe it's not a something you just, uh, it might not be a five-minute topic here, but I, I just want to get your thoughts a little bit. You kind of mentioned the cancer industry a little bit, and it's mm-hmm. it's something you hear a lot. You hear a lot of, on both ends of things, you hear a lot of people that say, well, you know, they have the cure for cancer, but they just don't give it to us because they want to, you know, milk all the medicines out of us. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your thoughts about the overall, I guess, the veracity of the mainstream approach to cancer and like what where in all this matrix does does cancer become come to the forefront where it's one of the just the leading causes of death that i'm not saying it wasn't around 100 years ago but it certainly wasn't around like it's around now yeah so i mean i think my my feeling is it's like the same as everything it's, it's extreme um toxicity along with nutritional deficiency over a long period can, uh, causes damage to the organs and they can't cope. Like, as we always hear, everyone's got cancer. The question is, is your body um, getting rid of the cancer faster than you're generating it? Now, a lot I've spoken to people who've gone into remission, as they say, I've, who claim to have cured their cancer. I've gone to the Gerson Therapy Clinic in Tijuana, um, the person, the Advanced Gerson Therapy Clinic, the person who ran it kindly put me up for a few days because I told him I was researching the book and I learned from him. And some of those people reverse cancer. Now, it, it's not easy. And sadly, in some cases, a lot of damage is done to the system and, and people can't and people don't recover from it. However, when you look at, I've got a lot of official sources saying very pessimistic things about their own treatments. And um, that's coming out in the up and coming book. So maybe we'll, we'll do a, a part B when when it's available, if, if you're happy to do that part too. But um, if you look at it, they say that Gerson therapy is quackery and it doesn't work and blah, 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 blah. That's, by the way, the, the juicing and the coffee enemas, pancreatic enzymes. And it's a whole protocol. Um, I, I won't bore you with all the details of the therapy. You're not allowed to do administer it in the USA. You need to go to Mexico. Now, the thing is, they've got mainstream cancer treatments that are not more effective than it, but you're allowed, but the government, Medicaid, Medicare, and private insurance will pay for those, right? Despite the absolute dreadful failure. Now, I'm not saying it works for everyone. When you watch the documentaries, which you can, there's two, there's, there's in one case, let me see if I can remember, um, one of the documentaries is called The Garrison Miracle, and uh, the other is called Beautiful Truth. And they are four years apart. One's uh, The Garrison Miracle is like 2004 and won a, uh, an award, and the other's in 2008. And you can see the same woman come in 
emaciated with terminal ovarian cancer and given six months to live. And four years later, the difference will shock you. So you can see right there that Gerson therapy works for some people. Now, they make it like it, it works for everyone and definitely for a lot of people that kind of more lots of juices, um, kind of vegan-ish diet is, is best on cancer. And then there's another group of people. That's why you can't do one, for, one, one size fits all with cancer who seem to need red meat and the diet and, and things like that. And there's a group of those people who recover too on a different protocol, the Gonzalez protocol. So this is the thing. It's not one size fits all. In a sane society, we'd go, oh, that's very interesting. Let's put a lot of money into finding out who, what protocols work for whom. There's, there's a bunch of treatments that, are, that have various backing, level of backing in the scientific literature. Uh, but, you know, um, let me see, like the, the lateralite treatment that the actor Steve McQueen went to in Mexico and people love to bring that oh Steve McKean went to Mexico and he died of cancer of alternative treatment like as if people don't die of mainstream cancer treatments all the freaking time a lot of the time the doctor shouldn't say you've got three months to live when you get cancer they, they should say we'll kill you in three months because a lot of people go I'm not doing that like Warren Zavon who was told he had three months to live and he went no way I'm doing chemo. I've got an album to record. I'm going to finish it before I die and went off and lived two, three years, right? According to Steve McQueen's friends and family, he didn't die because of the cancer treatment. The cancer treatment actually did reverse his cancer, but then he went to get cosmetic surgery uh, and to have the non-cancerous tumor removed from his belly. And then it was the cosmetic surgery that killed him. I don't know. The, the, the thing is, there's various things that if you're, if you're obese, if you don't take exercise, if you get a lot of radiation, including radiation from medical scans, if you consume a lot of drugs, if you're under a lot of stress, you're less likely to be able to survive cancer. But there's various things in like um, chaga tea, mistletoe, burdock, these uh, uh, E. coli's toxins, there's curcumin and turmeric mixed with ghee and black pepper. Um, it's, there's some scientific literature to support it. So what we would be doing is to go, how can we combine what we know and find out, you know, who, who can reverse cancer? The, the, the thing is, ultimately, prevention is better than cure. If you want to have a 1970s or even better, a, a 1923 rate of cancer, risk of cancer rather than a 2023 risk of cancer, then you need to live a bit more like people did then, which is mean like less processed foods, living food with living enzymes in it. That means uh, uncooked fruit and vegetables because the enzymes will help your body function. If you get animal products, get them from a butcher. Don't get the ones that are at the deli because they're treated with all sorts of chemicals get them get fresh get stuff the the minimally processed and minimally toxic food that you can find and bless and give thanks before you eat your food 
that you even have access to food, that you even have food at all. Because most people living in, a lot of people living in the world today and most people living in the world in the past did not have access to the brilliant selection of foods that we have now. And so if you approach your food with that kind of reverence and thanks, I believe that that has a, and slowly enjoy your meal, then that will have a massive impact on the way that it affects the system. So prevention is better than cure when it comes to cancer and heart disease and everything. And everything. I think that's good advice no matter what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anthony, it's been great having you on. We're going to continue this conversation in the smoke-filled room in just a second. Before we let you go, as we said, 7pharmamist.com. Feel free to plug away on anything else uh, you'd like to direct people to. Okay, great. A few things. One, um, as you mentioned in the beginning, this is my side hustle. It's not even a hustle. I'm like so so much impoverished for doing this rather than just working all the time. But I love it. So I am actually a psychotherapist and a coach. Uh, and if that is as specifically tailoring to libertarians, it doesn't necessarily need to be that you're isolated because you're a libertarian. I just found that people really appreciate having someone who understands where they're coming from and doesn't think they're mad for being a freedom lover. If that's something you're interested in, beyourselfandloveit.com will arrange a preliminary consultation and see if I can be of help to you. Secondly, I'm going to be at the Greater Reset in Morelia, Mexico, doing a presentation on Big Pharma. Uh, along with, it's run by Derek Rose and John Bush. And there's a lot of really freaking great speakers at that. Not the Great Reset, but the Greater Reset. I know we're not meant to plug tons of stuff, but I've been asked yeah, Plug to. away. Um, you can plug as much as you thing, want. You'll know what is for you. Another thing is, I am actually going to be co-teaching a course on the economics of healthcare reform. And it's kind of bigger than that because the guy who runs it, James Lyons-Wheeler, who I mentioned earlier on, is a contact with JFK. and uh, Sorry, RFK, not JFK. And he wants to... We're in our cohort. He wants an outcome of the course to have, uh, like a policy document that can be forwarded to that uh, to RFK. So, if you want to be part of shaping the healthcare policy of the future, um, uh, then that is that's something that you might be interested in. So, that's that's something we're doing, and I think those are my three plugs. In addition to that, there's the which everyone should download from sevenpharmamyths.com. And thank you for being such a gracious host. Thank you, Anthony. I'll see you in the smoke-filled room. <laughs>